Good morning. My name is Dave Foster. I'm one of the pastors here at Parkview. Uh, I'm just so happy to have this opportunity this morning to open up God's Word and share it with you. If you've been in here before, when I uh, get a chance to be up here, you know that I like to begin with the simple statement of our faith and our belief, who we are in Jesus Christ. Uh, words simply taken from Scripture uh, that state very clearly to ourselves and to our God uh, that we are children of the Father. So if you'll stand with me. Oh, I know, sorry. And then just repeat after me, all right? By the power. Now you got to say it. By the power. And the blood. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. I command. Put your little finger up. I do not suggest. But I command. That any and all evil. Thumbs. Get out of here. For my mind is a quiet place. It's a holy place where only Jesus and I can talk. And my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, we have just stated truth from your word. Nothing magic in these words. Just simple truth. And Father, uh, in the light of that truth, we ask that as we come before you today, not as spectators, not as an audience, but as willing participants in worship, as hearers of the word, doers of the word. May you, Father, fill our hearts with the presence of your spirit, and maybe we be united as we just uh, listen in one accord. Father, I pray you'd help me to be clear, help our hearts to be free of any thoughts that might be plaguing us this morning, any worries, any troubles, even those things that are good, Lord, can sometimes crowd out uh, what our focus should be. So we ask, Lord, for just your presence this morning. We love you. And we pray this in the name of your most glorious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You can take a seat. We're going to be looking this morning at Psalms 42 and 43, if you brought your Bibles. And the reason that we're looking at these two Psalms together is that because in most of the ancient manuscripts, Psalms 42 and 43 are just one Psalm. They belong together, and we'll see that shortly. Uh, this is the beginning of book two of the Psalms. There are about five books in the Psalms of, as the way that the Hebrews divided them up. It is also uh, part of what's called the Elohistic Psalter, meaning that the name of God in Psalms 42 through 83 is typically Elohim. And that will become important to our story this morning because it's a name of power. It's a name of strength and of might. And that is what the uh, Psalm writer here is recalling as he writes. So uh, it's also, and this is probably the most important fact about this psalm, an exilic psalm. And what we mean by an exilic psalm is the psalm written while the children of Israel were in exile. Now, just to help us understand this a little bit, let's put it in the historical context. And you said, oh, I knew that word history would come in somewhere if Dave was up here today. So we're going to back up 700-some years before the birth of Christ, right? So we're talking 2,700 years ago. The northern ten tribes of Israel are taken into captivity by the Assyrian Empire. Uh, why were they taken into captivity? Weren't these God's chosen people? Why would God allow this to happen? Uh, because of disobedience, frankly. Because of idol worship. Because they had forgotten their God. And as many times as they repented and came back to God, so the next person, the next king typically, would lead the nation off and astray to another God. 
even the good kings, like Jehu, uh, when they came into power, they might, like and he did, uh, remove all the Asherah poles and the images of Baal, uh, the false gods, the Sidonian gods. And yet, as God says, I was pleased with him, but he still didn't go far enough. He still left up the two bronze uh, calves, golden calves, I should say, uh, that people were worshiping in the high places. So no one really had their act together totally 100%. And most of them, it was far worse. Some of these kings replaced the actual worship of God by bringing in false gods. Ahaz uh, watched the Syrians and how they worshiped their god. And when he got back to uh, the temple, he actually pushed aside uh, the things that God had established in his creation of that temple and put up an image uh, of the Syrian gods. And so God was very angry at his people. Some 50 years later, after the Assyrians had carted off the northern ten tribes, along uh, comes, uh, excuse me, 150 years later, along comes the Babylonians uh, in 586 years before Christ. And the Babylonian Empire basically does the same thing. Uh, They take care of the last two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, uh, collectively known as the kingdom of Judah, and they carry them away. If you want to think of it this way, go to the book of Daniel, uh, which many of us are familiar with because of the great stories in there, and you have Daniel and his young friends are taken away by the Babylonians. That's this time period. And because they're good-looking young men, they have an aptitude for learning. Uh, The Babylonians chose the elite of society to take and re-educate in Babylonian ways with the hope of sending these uh, natural Hebrews with Babylonian education back into the lands they were taken from so that the Babylonian Empire could be established. Well, that's what we have here. The writer of today's psalm that we're studying is someone that went through the Babylonian conquest, somebody that has already seen their whole world, in a sense, come to an end. This psalm is a psalm of lament. It's a sad psalm. Uh, Lament psalms are where the psalmist is pouring out his heart to God. God, where are you? We're going to see this psalm is easily divisible into three parts. Uh, In Psalm 42, we'll divide that into two parts. The first one uh, is going to be a call to memory. God, I'm remembering what it was like to be in your presence. The second part will be a lament of where are you, God? Why are you absent? Why aren't you with me? And the last part, which is Psalm 43, is a joyful anticipation of things getting back to the way they once were. This speaks to our hearts, doesn't it? I don't know how many of you this morning are going through some tough times where we're missing God. We're wondering, what's God doing? How come life gets so tough? For the best of us, life is more difficult than it is pleasurable, right? For those of us who think we have everything going our way, there's enough things that happens in life that causes us, if we really focused on it, to be very sad. And often we come to God if we're believers and we pour out our hearts and say, God, where are you? I miss you. I wish that you were here. Lift me up, Father. Establish me. And that's what our psalmist is writing. So he's sitting somewhere in Babylon. He's seen the destruction of everything that he knows. Life as he knew it is gone. And he is just pouring out his heart. So let's take a read here. Chapter 42, starting in verse 1. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? 
My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me continually, where is your God? This guy is just weeping. He recognizes that whatever has happened has profoundly impacted him and impacted his family. His whole identity as a Hebrew is no longer visibly evident. These things I remember, and this is the key to this section, memory. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He's remembering what was last, the last time that he was in the presence of God. When was the last time you were in the presence of God, that you really felt God's presence? I can remember as a young man going to Urbana 79. Uh, it was a missions conference in Urbana, Illinois. And I was in college at those days. And a group of us left Omaha, and we traveled by van across Iowa into Illinois. And it was a missions conference. And they had these, I think, every other year. And this was 1979. That's why it's called Urbana 79. Very clever name for that. But, uh, yeah, we all gathered, thousands of us, thousands of us, uh, young college kids. And the challenge was there before us to think about what we were doing with our life. But the thing that really impacted me, besides hearing from Billy Graham and Louis Palau and all these great speakers, was the worship. Thousands of young people's voices lifted in true giving of themselves. I, I don't know if you've ever worked with young people, high school, college, but there is a giving of heart. There is a potential for them to just, everything they have, they give to God. They're, they're not weighed down with the things that we're weighed down with, the mortgage and the cost of cars and the health of our children and what's, what's happening at work and so forth. They're free. They're free to imagine and to dream. And when they feel the calling of God, it just sucks them in. And they're ready to just give their life to that purpose. And these people are just singing. Their, their hearts united as one. And you can just feel the power of God. It's an amazing thing. I have felt that power of God when I was at Dallas Seminary. And we would gather in chapel every day of the week. But on certain days, not every day, we would sing, all hail the power of Jesus' name. And these hundreds of men would stand. And, you know, if you remember that tune, it was just so powerful. All hail the name. The power of Jesus Christ. It's so cool. And when we go to, to uh, theology conferences, my wife and I, uh, we go to the Dallas Seminary Alumni Breakfast, and they sing that same song every time we get together. And you can just sense this is God. There have been times when I've been in this room right here, and I've been worshiping. Uh, today, if you were listening to that creation song during the offering, how can you avoid it? God is powerful. God is strong. This psalmist is saying, I remember what that was like. I remember being able to go before the throng, marching up the rise to the temple, the temple of God. Thing for him. And, uh, if you think about that, well, this temple was an amazing structure. Remember, Solomon was commissioned by God to build this very opulent, uh, lavish, uh, golden temple. It was the place where God said, in my mercy, in my grace, I will choose to localize my presence here. And it was a multi-year process to get this built. God blessed certain artisans with giftings and skills so that they could put all this together. And on the day that it was going to be dedicated, 
You remember? They moved the Ark of the Covenant. How many of you remember what that Ark was? It was a big, right, golden box, a box with gold overlay, with poles stuck through rings. And only the Levites, the tribe that ministered before God, could lift that Ark and carry it. And in the Ark, the only thing in there, right, was the tablets. And on top were two seraphim, two angels with outstretched wings. You know, remember your Raiders of the Lost Ark? Fairly accurate representation. And the angels' heads are bowed. And in the center, it says, of those outstretched wings, God was there. His presence was there. Now, it wasn't a good thing to treat this ark with any disrespect, right? If you remember some of your Old Testament stories, anybody who picked up that ark in a way that was not done specifically by the rules that God established usually would forfeit his life. But on this day, in 1 Kings 8, it's a tremendous, tremendous picture. We see the ark being brought in to Jerusalem up through the crowds and is ready to go into the brand new temple created for him. And where is the ark going to sit? Behind the curtain, behind the wall. No one's going to be able to see it. Your viewing of this coming in will probably be the last time in your life that you will ever get to see it. And God's presence is so holy, it's so powerful, that it must go into what's called the Holy of Holies. No one could go in there except for one person, right? And that one person was the high priest of Israel, uh, somebody from the Aaronic uh, priesthood, the descendants of Aaron. This man would have to go through ritual bathings and cleansings, and he would have to put on the appropriate robing and so forth, breastplate with all of the stones that were set, uh, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, the Unum and the Thunum, and so forth. He had what sewn into the hem of his uh, robe? Little bells. Tinkle, tinkle, tinkle. So when he walked, he made music as he walked. And one time a year, on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the priest, the high priest, would walk into the presence of God. He would get to penetrate the veil, go behind the curtain to where that ark sat, where God says that his presence would sit. Now on this day, when Solomon is dedicating the temple, it says that the cloud of God came in. And in response to the temple being built as God had established and the ark being there, it says that God's presence came upon the people and the cloud was so magnificent, so powerful, that even the priests could not stay in the room. They had to leave. God is at once both wonderful and terrible. He's not someone to be taken lightly. God came in power. God came in strength. But because he came, he came in love. He came in wonder. He came in awe. And from that time on, that high priest on that one day a year would go into that Holy of Holies and he would do the rituals that were required of him to atone for the sins of his nation, to bring the sins of Israel before God, all 12 tribes, and the sacrifices would have to be made. Right? If the bells stopped tinkling behind that curtain, the people knew something had gone wrong. The preparation hadn't been sufficient. The priest hadn't been of the right heart or mind. And they actually, by God's order, had created a long staff that had a hook on the end, right? And so they would put that under that curtain, looking for the priest's body. And they would pull it out, knowing that in God's presence, that even that priest couldn't stand. God, in his presence, so powerful, the psalmist is writing, I remember that. Not the dedication, because that happened long before he was alive. 
but throughout the festival days of the year, the different feast days, the different days of remembrance, all the times that the Israelites were required to show up at the temple, just regularly with sacrifices. They would bring their, their, their farm animals, and they had to sacrifice them. The Levites would take it from you. They would kill the animal. There would be the sprinkling of blood, right? There would be the smell of savory meat going up as an incense offering to God. It was an amazing thing. People would be singing. It was quite an experience. This is what the man remembers. He says, I remember going with the throng, leading them in procession to the house of God. So different of an experience that we have. He so desired to be in the presence of God. He so wanted to get as close as he could to that curtain where God himself resided, where he said, you are my people and you are our God. Oh, it meant so much to them. We, we really have a hard time putting ourselves in the psalmist's shoes, right? We don't quite understand that. So let's do this this morning. On this side of the room, you guys are going to be my oxen and my sheep, okay? I don't care which one you choose. I'll let you choose that on your own. But if you feel like a sheep this morning, you can be a sheep. If you feel like an ox, you can be an ox. Let me hear how sheep and oxen sound. That's a sad farm. I'll tell you that right now. Let me hear it. What do, what do oxen sound like? Yeah, everybody's like, uh, moo. And when I did this on the East Campus, it was like the only time they ever seen a cow was if they read a book. Moo. You know, you know oxen low. You know, it's like, so let me hear it. There you go. So keep it up. Sheep, oxen. Good. You guys are going to say on this side, Hosanna. Let me hear Hosanna. Excellent. Now we're going to walk into the temple to the outer courts and experience what it was like if you were an Old Testament saint like this psalmist is writing, what he went through. So as I come up, you keep up the sounds until I'm all the way to the front, all right? So oxen and sheep, let me hear you. Well, keep it going. Excellent. Way to go. Excellent. Yeah. Now, some of you didn't sound very distressed. These oxen and sheep are not like sitting on a hillside eating clover, right? They're getting ready to be killed. Why? Because the theme of Scripture is that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. I don't know why that is, why God created that as his standard. I suspect that he wanted us to take our sin seriously. Sin cost him something. It should cost us something. And the Old Testament saints recognized that we had to take care of our livestock. We had to raise, you know, a sheep ready for sacrifice had to be a sheep without blemish. A lamb, possibly, a ram, an oxen. It cost us something. If you've ever uh, been on a farm or a ranch, you know that livestock is expensive. But when they brought that in, and they set it before the Levite, before the, the, the priests, and it was blessed, and it was sacrificed, and the blood was spilled. The people knew their sin cost God something. It cost them something. And yet, it was a time of great worship. Because why are you guys saying Hosanna? Because when you bring in your sacrificial animal, your sin is atoned for, and you guys are thrilled. It's done. I have the ability now to worship God. I'm in his presence. Amazing. That is exciting. The psalmist says, I can remember that. 
And he's calling everyone that reads this to remember what it's like to be in the presence of God. His presence of God involved a lot of noise, a lot of sound. The trumpets are blowing. The shofars are just calling out, declaring that today is a day of feast. Today is a day of festival. Today is the day that we come close to the presence of God. The Levites, the smell of the meat cooking, the, the spray that's coming out there. And you remember they had uh, little uh, sifters and, and sprayers that would just sprinkle the blood everywhere because the sins had to be atoned for. All of this, the cacophony of sound and smell, would come into the nostrils of this man as he's writing. He says, I remember. I want to be in the presence of God. Now, as much as I can understand what he's saying, I have to say we know now that he would never experience that presence of God again. Because where was God for him? Back here, right? He was in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. When he's writing us, is God still there? No. If we turn to Jeremiah 52, maybe I'll do that for a second. You will hear, we can read, excuse me, that uh, things haven't gone the way that they had hoped. Uh, we're told Jeremiah the prophet, the last king of Israel, is Zedekiah, and Zedekiah is the son of Jeremiah's daughter, and he is the one that's going to rebel against the Babylonians. It says Zedekiah was 21 years of age when he became king. He reigned 11 years, and so forth. Uh, you drop down. Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. The king of Babylon said, "Said Zedekiah." If you don't want me to destroy you, then pay me so much in gold and silver. And Zedekiah decided he didn't want to do that. So a two-year siege was placed around Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And it went on and on. And finally, they lose. Verse 13, re referencing uh, the general of the Babylonians, uh, he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. If you drop down to verse 17, and the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord and the stands and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried all the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the basins and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the te temple service. Also the small bowls and the fire pans and the basins and the pots and the lampstands and the dishes for incense and the bowls for drink offerings. What was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold and what was silver, as silver. And for the two pillars, the one sea, the twelve bronze bowls that were under the sea and the stands, which Solomon the king had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these was beyond weight. And then it goes on talking about all the other things that the Babylonians carried away. As far as this psalmist knew, the temple was destroyed. Now we know that not too much longer uh, later that there would be a post-exilic effort. Remember in the book of Nehemiah, the book of Ezra, uh, some would be sent, a remnant, back to the land to start to rebuild that temple. Uh, of course, they could not rebuild it to the scale and to the opulence of Solomon's temple, but they tried, right? But it was going to remain basically unusable, especially after one of Alexander the Great's generals come in and sacrifices a pig on that altar, thus desecrating it. Um, it's going to be unusable until a non-Hebrew king rebuilds it 
hundreds of years later. And that opens the pages of the New Testament. King Herod, the Edomian, goes ahead and rebuilds it, trying to even outdo Solomon. But of course, he doesn't do that well. But even that was not the same as this. And so as far as the psalmist knew, it's just going to be a memory. God, you were with me. It was great. I loved being in your presence. But those days are gone. Don't we feel that way sometimes? Don't we go through periods of our life where we feel like God has abandoned us? Like he's not there anymore. Uh, there was that time when we came to know the Lord personally. Uh, it seemed to be the honeymoon of our spiritual experience. And then some ways our world comes crashing down around us. Uh, we experience health issues, financial problems, death of loved ones. Inexplicably, we pray and pray and God does not seem to hear us. And the psalmist is saying, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. The second section is the absence of God. And here, by the way, in verse 5, is the chorus of the psalm. So like if you think in music, this is the repeatable chorus because this is going to be in verse 5, verse 11, and then in verse 5 again of chapter 43. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And if you read down through that, it's deep calling to deep, at the roar of your waterfalls, at the breakers and your waves have gone over me. Life is so serious. Life is so tough. I just feel like I can't even breathe as just the power of life and of God just washes over me. The psalmist is ascribing the destruction of the temple and of his nation to God himself, which is accurate because that's what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah says back in chapter 52, because of the disobedience of the people, God allowed the Babylonians to come in and destroy it. Unfortunately for the Babylonians, they didn't read Jeremiah because in a couple of chapters before that, God actually details the destruction of the Babylonians for playing that role. But the psalmist, back where we are, says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. You see, all those things that the Babylonians took back to Babylon, all the artifacts of the temple, where did they put them? They put them at the feet in the shrine of their god, Dagon, or Marduk, excuse me, or Marduk, and there they, they sat, because that was common practice in the ancient Near East. When one country's god defeated another country's god, you got to take all of their god's representations, all the things that spoke to that people of their god, and say, basically, we've conquered you, and that means we've conquered your god, and therefore you have no faith left. You are our people. We don't want to hear any more about Elohim or Jehovah. You don't have a right to that kind of worship. And they piled probably all those bronze artifacts, gold artifacts, whatever they could have found, right there at the feet of Marduk. And there was quite a ritual every year they had of their own, full of blood, human blood, but full of blood. And they would have just been ecstatic that the God, the once powerful God of the Hebrews, had been defeated. Why would God allow that to happen? It's the depths of despair. Uh, there, there are times we may not see that so visually represented, but we feel that, don't we? In our hearts, we feel like God has just let another God have victory. Another people, another event has more power than we see. I, I had a young lady just this week write me, and she was one of my youth group girls from days when I was in Nebraska. 
but she's going through some really tough things right now. And she says, why does God not answer my prayers? I need him financially. I need him health-wise. I need him as I try to raise my four children. Where is God? And my heart breaks for him. And what's my answer? He is there. But that's not going to solve our problems, is it? We just feel like, God, why have you deserted me? With the psalmist, we pray that. God, why have you forgotten me? Go into Psalm 43, what's really the last part of 42. And we have the hope of joyful anticipation of God's restoration. Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceit and un, excuse me, deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me into your holy hill, to your dwelling. Now he knows that the temple is gone. So what in the world is he talking about? Bring me into your holy hill. Let me go to your dwelling. I think the psalmist was writing in faith that no matter what his own eyes saw as the Babylonians conquered his city and set everything on fire, he believes there will be a restoration. That's his hope. That's his faith. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. And he's saying, I'm going to come back before this curtain. I want to be in the presence of God. This is an Old Testament saint. We don't do that today, do we? We don't have that experience with the cacophony of sound and smells and coming into God's presence with the blowing of trumpets and the, and the sacrifice of animals. But we've experienced something else, right? So now this side of the room, this time I just want you to moan and groan like a human being. Let me hear it. Eh, you sound like me when someone's trying to wake me up. Oh, groan, you're in pain, pain. There you go. That's good, Tom. I like that. Pain, all right? You guys are shouting what? Crucify him as loud as you can. Let me hear it. That's as loud as you can. Crucify him. Crucify him. Keep it up. Moaning, you're still going. Come on. That's right. Right. That's great. And who's, call, who's shouting this out? Keep it up. That's right. Who's, who's groaning? Is it the animals that are being sacrificed? Who's being sacrificed? Who? Yeah, Jesus. We don't go through that because the one sacrifice has already happened. While the Old Testament saying is coming up the hill to the temple to experience the presence of God behind that curtain, we've just walked up Golgotha. We've walked up a totally different hill. And there on the mount is a cross. And Jesus is nailed to it with ugly iron nails. And he's moaning. He's groaning. He goes through a series of statements. It's obviously statements of pain. Statements of absence of God. God, why have you left me here? Where are you? I don't feel you like I used to. And because of that, we don't have to go through this anymore. Because you see, when Jesus died on that cross, didn't he? He went through that separation for us, that absence for us. What the psalmist is writing about, we never have to go through that ever again. It feels like it, but we don't have to because God is continually with us. What Jesus did through that death on the cross 
was greater than anything that happened in that temple. It was the ultimate payment for our access to God. Once Jesus died on that cross, there was no need for the ark to be behind a curtain, right? The veil was torn. The veil was torn. And you and I, we've been adopted as the children of God. We don't need priests. We don't need snuffers and bronze pans and coal chutes and all the things that were carried off to Babylon. Because we, without any merit on our part, without doing anything to deserve it or earn it, we have the opportunity and the privilege of being in the presence of God on a continual basis. Now, we're in pain at times. We feel the lack of God. Sometimes it's so hard to get in touch with him. But we live in that ever-present chapter 43, that joyful anticipation of God. Now, we know this because in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, and even in Ephesians, that we are what? We are the temple of God. Think about that now from everything that we just studied. You and me, we're temples. That's amazing. Now, Paul could have used any word he wanted in the Greek. He could have used the word for house or place or whatever, but he didn't. He specifically, theologically, picked out the word for temple. Don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? You are God's place of dwelling. Amazing. Despite your sin, despite the fact that every person in this room was shouting crucify him, because we do that. Even though we weren't there 2,000 years ago when Jesus made that sacrifice, every time we sinned, we were basically saying crucify him because we could not pay the price ourselves for the atonement that was required. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And Jesus' shedding of that blood made it possible for the veil to be torn and the presence of God to be released upon his people. And we saw on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when those tongues of fire descended upon his people, the sound of a rushing wind, and the people were energized, and the people were inspired and filled, and it's been that way for the last 2,000 years. God's people are the temples of God. Not these buildings. Uh, I love Parkview. And there are some beautiful churches out there with spires and buttresses and stained glass windows. But none of those are churches, are they? They're just buildings. Beautiful as they may be, with all the good intent in the world at their creation, they're just buildings. The church, that's us. The church, that's you. That's me. That's every individual in here because we carry the presence of God with us as believers everywhere we go. When you go to work, when you're with your family, when you're on the job, people are coming into contact with God. Isn't that amazing? Now, if you're like me, you're saying, well, there sure seems to be a lot of the time that I don't really act like I am the temple of God, that I have his presence. But we do. Uh, I love in Colossians chapter 3, the uh, author there writes what it's like 
to be in the presence of God, to be those temples, when he talks about how God's people are so unique. And he says in chapter 3, verse four, uh, 15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's an interesting verb, isn't it? Dwell. He didn't say, you know, let the word of Christ be something you learn, uh, teach it in Sunday school, all those things, which he might have. But he says, let the word of Christ dwell. It's a residential verb. It takes root in you. It's something that you can't get rid of. It is part of you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns, just like we're doing, and spiritual songs with thankfulness. We don't have to go through the whole thing that this writer of the psalms is writing about today. We don't have to bring animals. You don't have your backyard, I assume, full of little oxen and sheep ready to bring to church next Sunday because we recognize the one sacrifice has been made, filled with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We are temples. When we get together, the church of God in community, whether that's a community group or this church service or whatever it is, can you imagine what power that is? Do you really believe that God dwells within you? Just as much as he did behind the curtain on that day when Solomon dedicated the temple, just as much as he did throughout those hundreds of years when people gathered for the feast days for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, yeah, it's come and it's gone. Jesus Christ made that atonement. We are free, free from the sin, free from those things which make us doubt the presence of God. When we're down, when we feel like God has left us, it is a step of faith to say, no, he hasn't left me. Can you sin so much? Because this is what I think. Boy, when I'm not feeling God's presence, when my life is going bad, the first thing I think is, what have I done? And I know, last year I said something like, what did I own do that caused God's separation? But I kind of got her sorted out on that. So, yeah, you know, what did I do that God is... No, that's not the question you want to say. It's just like, God, you're still abiding. You're still with me. Your spirit doesn't leave me. I want to be with you. I am with you. I have faith that you're still here. Even though I can't feel you, it is not the same absence as it was for the psalmist. There's been a profound and fundamental shift in what God has done. There's going to come a day, the next phase of this, right? When at the end of time, there's going to be the marriage feast of the Lamb, when God is going to call forth all of his saints from all time, all places. We're going to gather as one body. And then we are going to see the presence of God, right? We are going to be one huge family. And together we are going to break bread. We're going to drink from the cup. We're going to remember the sacrifice that was made. And we're going to be reminded that there was never a time in our lives when God forsook us, when God left us. He's here. No nation like Babylon, no idol worship is going to take that presence away. We live for Christ. Today, this week, as you go out and you interact with the people in your communities, with your families, bear testimony to the fact that you know the risen Savior, that your life is fundamentally different, more profoundly different than any peoples have had the privilege of living ever since that time of the cross. Do so with joy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.